1: Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi Way. I'm Tim Mcintosh. And you're listening to Close Reads a podcast for the Incurable Reader on which we are answering your questions about John Kennedy tools A Confederacy of Dunces. This is a book that confounded some people. So we're going to have some some great questions. It was also a book that left some people feeling cold. So I think we've got some questions about that. First though, Heidi and Tim, it's Christmas week. It's Tuesday, December 21st when we're recording right now. We're recording a little earlier than normal. By the time this episode goes up, it will be, I believe, Christmas Eve or maybe a little earlier, if, depending on you know, what Logan wants to do as far as getting it ready. But Merry Christmas and uh, thanks, for, thanks for taking some time Christmas week to give the people what they want.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad to be here to share my exuberant Christmas spirit with the world. How about you, Tim?
0: I'm really excited to share my exuberant Christmas spirit with the world. Oh, the man. thing about you,
2: Tim, is that's I like a seven. I am full <laughs>
0: of fest, festive feelings. It's not as
2: good as it gets Mirth. for Tim. And I have,
0: and I have. Unless decked. he was at my house. <laughs> Dude, and I was wearing a candy cane jumper. <laughs> isn't that what you, isn't that what <laughs> that your boys get dressed up as? I would
2: really like to see. Yes. That's exactly, <laughs> that's candy a direct jumpers. quote. Yeah. I dress my boys go. up in candy cane jumpers. Yeah. by Heidi White. And Direct here's some quote. mincemeat pie. <laughs> Isn't what that even the other is thing that? you guys do? I
0: don't know. It's one of those things that shows up like in Dickens is what we and did. in and in like Laura Ingalls Wilder novels. Mincemeat <laughs> pie. I did, it's Like
2: it's true. I, I did roast a goose a couple of years ago. I, I did remember roast that. And I remember that. Yeah, it was that. awesome. It was really good. Aren't they really kind of greasy fowls? Not if you do it properly. So they are. Oh. They are. There's a system. <laughs> uh huh. To degrease the fowl, and I is there really? Was, well, you turn it in crispy. Like so, you have to dry brine it overnight and poke holes. It's it's a process. It's a whole thing. And it was delicious. Can and I-, I made like the best gravy, and I kept the. The fat, the goose fat, and I used it for a bunch of stuff over the course of the year, and it was delicious. So, you know what, Tim? What's that? (laughs) God bless us, everyone. Everyone. (laughs) My association
0: with geese, aside from...
1: um, A vast open open skies and a crinked neck?
0: Yes. No, there's a kind of funny story around my family as told by my mom, who is one of the gentlest, kindest, most warm-hearted people that I've ever met. And she told me the story about, I
1: think it was the day- Anytime her, you lead off a story with that, it's going to be a good one. Oh, yeah. This is a she's good a one. normally gentle person. I feel person. like she's
2: going to turn into a badass in about 15 <laughs> she, seconds. That is exactly right. Yeah. That's
0: exactly what happens. Um, the day that her- Mother died. Her mother died of tuberculosis, like shortly after my grandmother and my grandfather moved in with us when I was like in I don't know, wow, I was maybe ten or something like that. So my mom drove um, off to this little park to be by herself. and she, you know, was having a really bad day. Her mom had just died. so she gets in the car to drive home, and there are these flock of geese that were crossing the road. And they kind of like looked up at mom's approaching car and they were like, you know, and they're they're giving mom a hard time for like exiting the park. And mom was like, I have had enough. And she just guns it. She just guns the car right into this flock of geese and scattering them everywhere. And that was like a moment of real catharsis. Catharsis for mom, and every time I hear about,
2: I'm so proud of her. I am. they are mean. They're mean they they are creatures. So mean. That is exactly
0: right. So many people don't know that about geese. They deserve. Oh, it. they're so beautiful Justice. up in the sky. Justice was
1: served. Strangely, That's for right. the next four days,
0: we had goose
1: for dinner. We had
0: goose for. We had goose dumplings. day That's where
1: <laughs> I the got my recipe. <laughs> I had a new feather pillow in my bed two days later. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, Explain before them. we get into the, to the Q&A I have a Q for you to A about the holidays We've talked about nice. uh, that some was of, nice. some of the, that. the traditions <laughs> Some of the traditions that Tim made fun of last week um, We've talked about this in the past a little bit But I'm curious, what are your favorite Christmas movies? I'm sure, you know, maybe over the next few nights You might be queuing up a, uh, a good holiday Holiday a bit of entertainment. So I'm curious, wh- what are the ones that you turn to every year, Tim? What about you? What do you, what do you got on that, on that? I'm gonna list? make a top. He's about to say Die Hard. List.
0: Die Hard number three, number two, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, and number one with an absolute bullet: the heartwarming tale of a man who has an encounter with an angel while standing on his suicide bridge. It's a wonderful life it's a wonderful life I think is a top 10 movie regardless of seasonal um, like seasonal weight. It is such a beautiful movie and I there are a couple of scenes that I will cry every time I see the scenes the scene in the drugstore where the druggist has like you know he's overwhelmed because he lost his son in the war and he puts too much of a bad chemical is a in kid. The mixture. And when George is a kid, and yeah. George knows what he's done, and so he doesn't deliver. Oh my gosh, that scene is absolutely! I don't even know how they did that scene because like the slaps that the old man is giving, you know, young George, young George are George, yeah. so violent. They're so real, and George that young man's acting is just like it was incredible that's just such an incredible scene and it pivots you know like like the realization that george has done a really good
1: thing is oh it kills me Mm. that is um it's fascinating to me how that movie has become a staple of christmas because in many ways it's actually kind of a Kind of a strangely dark movie for much of yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then in the end, it ends positively, but most of the time, it's this guy who's on the edge of despair. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, two, and a half, two hours and 25 minutes of despair. Oh, yeah. The most famous of Christmas movies. Life on the Or bridge. at least one of them. And Die Hard is definitely a Christmas movie. I get together with some friends most Sunday nights to watch various Sunday cinematic fair of varying Sunday streamers, cinematic fair of various degrees of quality. And this last Sunday, was, it was Die Hard week Because we had to watch was Die Hard really? with the Boys Oh yeah, and on a rewatch Still holds up, great action movie Regardless of Christmas or not And you see, like it's so influential On like Mission Impossible and so many things like that Really, really <clears throat> um, Heidi, what about you, Christmas movies
2: um, So I Just want to say that now we know Where the full weight of Tim's Christmas Sentiment is It's on It's a Wonderful Life so, it is yeah, The bleak I, the feel, better. I feel I feel closer to you right the Tim now It's a Macintosh
0: story Yeah Because you feel like I actually do so have So that some way spirit. that you
2: feel about <laughs> Yes That way you feel about It's a wonderful life Is how I feel Is how about Heidi feels about Candy Cane rompers Christmas joy and mirth um, Including <laughs> the rompers That my family wears Um I I'm So my three <laughs> Yep
1: yeah, Wise
2: Um My top three Christmas movies. Number three, the cartoon version of How the Grinch Stole Christmas. I'm crazy about that movie. Number two is Home Alone. We love that movie. That is, I I laugh. My it's slapstick, so maybe I do love farce. But I love that movie. Um, And I mean, does that
0: one stand up? Does that one stand up? Like, hold up.
2: I don't, I think it does, but I don't know because I don't care. Like I'm not a film person. So I am in that blessed, but totally lowbrow position of being like, I don't know if it's good, but I know what I like, you know, like how regular people walk through the Louvre. I'm like that about movies. So that's. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Regular people walk through the Louvre. That's how I am with movies.
0: Oh my gosh. Um, Logan can we get any like sound effects on that People <laughs> we'll walk through the Louvre That's how I am with movies <laughs> I,
1: think it I don't holds
2: think we up, need a sound effect but, Okay David the, does it the hold parenting,
1: up It does it holds up The parenting though is a real problem Like in any generation it's so bad And especially like, like There's no like, The idea that it happened again in Home Alone 2 That really doesn't hold up just no, you kind of want to call child services. services, exactly. Yeah. Like,
0: yeah, right, Dfax yeah. didn't get a didn't get a call on January first.
2: Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. It's, I
0: mean, and it could never happen now because of cell phones and stuff.
2: Hey, I, by right. the way,
0: by the way, um, I heard that Airbnb will allow you to rent the Home Alone house. It's like one of their offerings. Oh little plug for Airbnb, the most recent host of Close Reads.
2: As long as there's no tarantula in the house. I'll take the robbers, no problem, but (laughs) no tarantula. Um, Okay, and then I feel like the banter is really extended here. So I'm going to give you my number one with a bullet, which is the Muppet Christmas Carol. So that's, yeah.
0: I don't know that I've seen that in like 30 years
1: well, we watch I'll it every say Michael year. Michael Caine is Michael Caine is acting the heck out of that movie. He's such a there's good. There's no other people in it. <laughs> wow, yeah, that's well, impressive. that's true because
2: the rest of them are Muppets. So, yeah. but, like they make Gonzo into Charles Dickens and he narrates the whole story. It's and no his little way. rat friend doesn't believe that he's really Charles Dickens. It's it's no so way. great. Like it's a really really good. It's an objectively good yeah. movie. And I think yeah, it that's, because a good, Michael that's a good. That's a big one in our house. Yeah is a really good Scrooge. So anyway, Tim, oh, David, what are your
1: three? I'm going to put Die Hard on there just because it's, I, I love it and I'm going to just, I, 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 you know, I'm like Die Hard how regular people are with the, when they walk through the loo. <laughs> I, I just know what I, want, I know what I like.
2: so funny. Um, if it's funny the first time, it's funny every time. Where's Mona Lisa, where's
1: Mona Lisa? <laughs> when to see
0: that funny smile?
1: <laughs> um, well, I'll tell you my favorite Christmas movie. I would say that probably It's a Wonderful Life would be two for me. It's hard because there's a bunch of the regular just sort of classic ones that kind of are in a jumble to me. Um, the National Lampoons and Christmas Story. And like those, to me, those are all kind of, of of one. The ones that I find myself excited to watch every year are Die Hard, It's a Wonderful Life, and then a movie that is in my top three movies regardless. Sometimes it's my favorite. Sometimes it's my second. Sometimes it's my third favorite depends on when you ask me, but that is The Apartment, the Billy Wilder movie.
2: It's mm. such a great movie. It takes
1: place from right before Christmas to New Year's. And th- that's the movie that I make my wife watch with me. And then I end up watching it when she falls asleep. Because um, <laughs> we have little kids and so forth. But um, that is the greatest holiday movie ever. And mm. it's up there with its own wonderful life. And it's a, just a personal...
2: I forgot um, that that was a Christmas that that yeah, it takes place over the Christmas line.
1: break. Yeah, mm. yeah. We'll watch it like this the, week. now. You reminded big me of. Climax it. is New Year's Eve, and the big and the end of Act One is a Christmas party. So great, great movie. It's about becoming a mensch, better human being. Hmm. Um, great, great uh, wordless acting in that movie. Just fantastic, women. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, and like super Jackie snappy lemon, yeah. dialogue. That's just yeah, great. Yeah.
1: Billy Wilder was a legend. Um, just want to throw that out there for those of you who have not. Brushed up on your Billy Wilder, make that a 2022 resolution. One of the greatest filmmakers ever, Sabrina, for example. Okay, oh, that's that. um, oh wow, Sabrina, The Apartment, um, Some Like It Hot. I mean, just an incredible, incredible uh, canon of movies. Okay, but we are here to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> something else. Um, we've got a bunch of questions on Confederacy of Dunces. And I want to start with this one, which was emailed. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, give some priority here in these first three questions to three people who sent us emails. This is from Elizabeth Trotman, longtime listener, Patreon supporter. Big thanks to Elizabeth for all of her support. So she says, this is probably way too long for the podcast because I have to explain the premise first. You all rejected the premise in the last episode. So I'm going out on a limb. So you don't have to answer it. But when someone says this is probably too long for the podcast, I take that as a challenge and we're going to try it. So she says this, this is her premise. Every character has some kind of redemptive arc. So I'm going to read her ideas for what each of these redemptive arcs are and then her question, and then we'll get some feedback. Okay. So Mrs. Riley, she suggests, asserts her independence from her son and tells him the truth. You learned everything, but how to be a human being. Gus Levy works out his parental issues with his father after seeing the Ignatius story. Um, Miss Trixie gets to retire and gets a ham because Ignatius explains her motives to Gus. Officer Mancuso gets elevated within the police force due to the having att- redemption, attract-
0: redemption, like
1: a ham. <laughs> we need to get that one, um, a call out there. We need to get a hashtag on that, um, mm-hmm. a re- hashtag redemption ham. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's why we eat ham at Christmas anyway, right? Uh, Jones gets an award from Levy Pants and a job over the minimum wage, all because Ignatius came to the bar. The dancer girl, who she, Elizabeth says she forgets her name, gets a big break because of the scene caused by Ignatius. Lana Lee gets her just desserts because of Ignatius. Myrna gets to save someone because of Ignatius. She has saving in air quotes. And Ignatius leaves his child at home in New Orleans, harkening back to the beginning of the book when he was afraid to go anywhere at all. With a movement towards being able to exist in the world he actually physically touches a woman with a movement towards intimacy or genuine connection with another human being. So Elizabeth summarizes, it seems to me that Ignatius is the hero who makes everyone's life better in the end, even though the way he does it is not by teaching them about medieval philosophy. (laughs) So her (laughs) question, if you accept the premise, what might the author want us to take from the dissonance between how Ignatius wants to help people by teaching them philosophy and how he does help people by being sort of crazy. That's an interesting question. Yeah, there's a real
0: dissonance there.
1: So and I think even if we don't totally accept the premise, I think she's, in some of those, she seems to be being a little tongue-in-cheek about Redemption. But it, you know, it does seem like there is movement in a lot of these characters in a way that isn't always readily obvious. And I, her summary is, is pretty apt, I think, overall. Tim, go ahead. I, I was going to say, I think you're
0: right. Movement happens with every character. It seems like the way that we've been using Redemption is sort of like an internal turn toward the good and away from the bad. And I think Mrs. Riley does that. And a couple of the other characters do that. A lot of the movement though, is sort of like Jones is just rewarded, you know, But I don't know that like Jones like has like a big turn. Anyway, that might be a quibble. Elizabeth would be like, Tim, get over it. I'm just, you know, pointing out that it's movement. And I think she's exactly right. I think there's movement in all those characters. The interesting question, which I'm going to let Heidi answer, because I just feel like she's got something on this, is that incongruity between what um, Ignatius J. Riley teaches and kind of like what he ends up Getting from people because he's kind of crazy. Heidi, aren't you glad that I just kind of punted that thanks question over? Thanks so much. To thanks thanks for punting it over. <laughs> I'm going to I don't that, have an answer
2: myself. I'm going to pick up that punt and I'm going to head the other way and take it into the end zone and score a touchdown. Nice. See, that was a sports ball. Sports ball? Some of that was so, true. Yeah. I, so I like what you, I, I really like. Will you remind me the listener's name, David? Because this is a really, Elizabeth, this is a great. A really, really great comment. I really love it. Um, I, I think it depends on whether you interpret this as a comedy or a tragedy. So David made the case last week, and and I think it was pretty compelling that it's a kind of a dark, uh, or excuse me, a funny tragedy. Um, and so you could look at it as like a dark comedy or a funny tragedy. If you look at it like a dark comedy, I think you're that Elizabeth, you're exactly right. Um, uh, Ignatius looks like an agent of chaos but he actually brings some sort of order uh through his clumsy and failed interventions. He's just blind to what he the good he's doing in the world. Um, And, and then you can kind of look at everything he's saying as absolutely true, which I definitely do. Like the world needs the, the modern world needs theology and geometry. I couldn't agree more. Right. And he's actually coming in and bringing and imposing some kind of um, theology and geometry upon the world. I mean, Tim even just used the word congruent, which is a geometrical mm, term, yeah. right? Um, so I think that there's that 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 is one way to look at it. Another way that also works is if you see it as a funny tragedy, then what you see is a potential for redemption through these uh, this accidental intervention from Ignatius, but nobody, but everybody misses it. Nobody's eyes are open enough to see it. And, Mm. and then it still ends with this kind of tragic inversion of the hero running off into the sunset, but we know he's just going to repeat this pattern and, and wreck it all again. Right. And so it's one or the other, really not both. And I think that that is the, the, up to the, up to the reader to be able to see it one way or the other.
1: I think that's partly because of like, you kind of want to look at it from a meta perspective. Are those changes like that these, these characters end up making or having thrust upon them? Are they like absolutely necessary within the world of the story? Or are they something that our author as the creator of the world makes happen to create an order out of Ignatius's chaos? Like, you know that's what right. all authors do, to some degree.
2: Theology and geometry, <laughs> yes.
1: but there is also an extent. Like, is he just making it? Like, is it? Tr- you could quibble, or you could suggest that those things, that those changes weren't were not consistent with what had been going on. Like, there's a little bit of a um, hand of God scenario there. Like, what do you? What's the phrase when it just kind of feels like some of those th- changes come out of nowhere? Do it, right. um, deus, deus ex machina. machina. Yeah, deus ex machina. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the author's just basically saying, I want there to be the illusion at least of some sort of positive movement. So he just makes it happen. <clears throat> and as opposed to it naturally organically happening through the course of the action of the story. Like what that's one of the interesting things to me about storytelling is the way the greatest authors make the thing they would feel like should happen seem organic. Like the story, it's the only thing that could have happened. And when I read this book, as much as I love it, sometimes I wonder if Like I don't feel like the the things that happen to the characters in the end are the only things that could have happened to them. Mm. I don't know if that makes sense. Just I'm thinking about it on a meta sort of choice level for the storyteller, which is sort of annoying to do and pedantic, but I I know no other way. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome
0: to David Kern. I know I know no other way. Why why are we doing this? (laughs) I remember David reading an essay that argued that um, comedy was the kind of like the most theological, robust genre of Mm. films and books. And I approached that title with some skepticism because as we all know, drama, which suits my nature, particularly dark, sad drama, is the most robust, yeah, especially the most theological, robust genre. So I approached with... Hesitation and skepticism, but by the time I got to the end, I was like, "Oh, this is a really good case and the case I think actually really fits confederacy of dunces here, so what Ignatius J. Riley advocates for is yeah, a return to theology and geometry, but everything that he does buffoon like clown like ends up kind of backfiring, and yet at the end, everyone's there is positive moment movement for every character. And so what you're left to assume or what you're left to kind of extract from that is that there is some hidden force that brings about positive movement for all of the characters, just as theology overtly asserts. And so no character within the realm of the story is bringing about these good things. It's some hidden force outside Mm. of the realm of, of the characters that's bringing about good ends for them. And so you can make the case that like the theology that Ignatius J. Riley is advocating for and trying to teach. Well, it's not really, he fails in his attempt to teach it, but in this Mystical it's way. It's working on the characters. It's working on the characters. Yeah. It's yeah, the well, energy that drives the world. The world. What is the
2: line about grace? Yeah.
0: There is a um, <laughs> there's <laughs> a power that shapes our ends. Roughly them how we will something like that. Like that's mm-hmm. that's in a lot of ways the story of this novel.
2: Right. Well, and it's like *Bride's Head*. Right. In *Bride's Head*, it's the twitch upon the string. Mm-hmm. Like there, and there is an action of grace within the story. I think. For me, one thing I've been wrestling with in real life, and now I'm kind of applying it to this book, and it makes me like the book a little better, um, is, the, is is it necessary for our, the eyes of our hearts, the eyes of our soul to actually be open to see the action of grace in order for the action of grace to actually have mm-hmm, a real mm-hmm. effect? on our souls, a redemptive effect on our souls. And if it is necessary for the characters to be aware of that in real life, people in real life or in a story, I think this is a tragedy. Mm. But they don't see it. Because they don't see it. I don't see any Mm -hmm. evidence that anybody sees it in the story. Mm -hmm. However, and that actually I wrestle with just in general about life. Like I want, like, can you not see the action of grace? In your life. Mm-hmm. And if you can't, does that mean, you know, It's a tree falls in a forest and nobody's around to hear it, it doesn't make a sound, right? The action of grace to me, I wrestle on a very personal level of, of, with that question about grace. Mm-hmm. Like, is it necessary for us to be aware of it for us to have a real effect upon the arc of redemption in the human life? Mm-hmm. Um, or is it all happening whether we see it or not and moving us toward? salvation. And, and that is something I personally am tormented by. And so looking at that in the novel kind of gives me a different perspective on it. So I'm grateful for Elizabeth's Mm. question.
1: Mm. At the risk of it being too abrupt, I I do want to move on to some other questions though. So this one comes from Rosemary also via email. By the way, if you ever want to email a question in it's david at goldberrybooks.com so rosemary says i'm not on social media so if this has already been discussed you can just out the question but i'm wondering if a confederacy of dunces is comparable to any other book it seems to stand in a genre and possibly a universe of its own (laughs) usually when i'm reading either the book or the author reminds me of another but this one i think the closest i came for sheer ridiculousness was the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy and some of the stereotypical but memorable characters remind me of herman woke's new york jewish uh, characters in his books anyway just wondering if you all have any insights on this. What would you compare this book to, Heidi?
2: I was just about to say, I'm like the worst person to answer this question because I don't, like, this isn't my favorite genre. I don't read a lot of like farce and comedy books. Um, So when I encounter them, I like them. So, I mean, we've already talked about Woodhouse. We've talked a bit about Don Quixote and the picaresque genre. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think that those are comparable. I know for a fact that there's a lot of... um, Like, I I, I know that there are books like this that I have not read. Mm. Um, And I don't know where this falls in, where Confederacy of Dunces falls kind of in that hierarchy, if it's considered a classic and that kind of farcical comedy with like an unlikable character at the center. I know that's pretty popular in modern books. So I'm going to pass it off to the two of you, especially to David, because I don't know if anybody knows this, but David owns a bookstore, so he might have what? access to this oh, no. more than any of us. But Tim, you seem like you like books like this.
0: So. <laughs> what is that called? That's called like damning with praise, faint praise. But it's not praise exactly. It's like damning with faint associative powers. Like Tim, you like you like kind of. Bad books like this, <laughs> don't you? Can you speak
2: into this question? You like gross books? Yeah, with terrible people in them. So,
1: um, Hamlet. It, yeah, right. I, the, the,
0: the, you named the first two that sprang to my mind: Woodhouse and Don Quixote. I would maybe add Chaucer. There are just enough allusions. To That's a up. good
2: point, Chaucer. Yeah.
0: But I don't think it really fits Chaucer's. Narrative very neatly. I think. It, I think the book that it
1: resembles is probably Cervantes's Don Quixote. I think a couple other ones that you could that, that often get mentioned in the same breath are are Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is actually a really good reference or, or mention. Uh, also, Kurt Vonnegut gets mentioned in the same. Uh-huh. It's kind of being a similar similar uh approach. Um, so does. Walker Percy,
2: Walker which Percy. we talked about a little
1: bit. And of course, Percy was the one that sort of discovered this book. If you, before we started this, I actually was kind of looking up this question, kind of seeing like, when people talk about this book, what do they talk about? And one of the authors that gets talked about a lot in connection to John Kennedy Toole, somehow is David Sedaris, <laughs> really? who is a comic nonfiction writer. I have comic, read him and I writer. like
2: him. He makes me huh. laugh out loud. Huh. His books yeah, so, get progressively, but those first few were hilarious. Exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah. He actually has a new book out called uh, something like a, a chronicle of snackery or something, and it's like twenty yeah. years of his journals. Huh. Um, oh, just came this funny. Year. Me talk pretty
2: um, one day made me laugh harder than any book I've ever read in my life. Really? <laughs> really? Yes, I loved that book.
1: <laughs> okay, uh, next question. This comes from Danielle, also via email. Uh, she says, "Coming at you with a general request for a Confederacy of Dunces Q and A. Please get back on your what's the deal with." dot, 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 train of thought. In the episode where you are, you articulated this line of thinking, I got re- really excited and thought you guys were going to get into some of the more bizarre and seemingly random characters and plot points, but you didn't necessarily after all. So if I had to pick one person or thing from the list, I would pick Jones. What's the deal with Jones? Mm. Said in our best Seinfeld voice. That's just me adding that. But what's the deal with Jones? I'd really like to hear, you take, hear your take on that. And then we got some questions about that on the Facebook group too. So I think we we should make sure we address What's the deal with Jones? Mm-hmm. Hoo-ah. Tim? I don't know what the deal with Jones is.
0: Jones is like, there's maybe three or four characters that like play a similar kind of role there. They're hilarious. They're fun to listen to. And they're really sharply defined. Like whenever Jones walks on the stage like his voice is immediately recognizable and his agenda is immediately recognizable. And I think he's really well drawn in that way, but like what role does he play? The best that I can come up with is he is a vibrant picture of a new Orleans style character. He just belongs in the setting because he's such a prominent fixture in new Orleans
1: that's the best that i, I think, can do i do think that the question of race is also something that jones represents because for ignatius it's, it's like this it's something he can sort of like be fake a fake warrior over like a fake yeah. social justice warrior yeah. and so you have this character who is in, in like very dire situations right like who who can't like a lot of the things that jones says about his situation are either true or mm-hmm. kind of heartbreaking. If you take them at face value and don't, and you just kind of strip away the way he says things and the kind of weirdness of the character. And so it makes him, it, it makes him a character who is not actually in a very different place in life than Ignatius in terms of the status, other than the fact that he is black. Yeah, And so Ignatius can both look down on him and think of himself as better than him. And as somebody that he is, going to kind of go to bat for, so to speak. And yet also never actually do anything for. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's a big part of this book is like the idea that of people having best intentions that only serve them their own sense of who they, who they are themselves. Mm. Um, And it goes back to my old, uh, this is just people on Twitter thing. (laughs) But I do think that's an important part of it. I think there's a, that's a there's great a, answer, David. I think that's there is better a than a New Orleans color. No, I think the New Orleans color is a really important factor with a lot of these characters. And he, you know, I, I think he is doing a satire, a send up of that culture, having lived there mm. in a way that you couldn't do if you didn't live there. Yeah. But I also think that there is a, a sort of like a social justice, you know, an ironic social justice element to this that, that allows him, Kennedy, Tool, to make some points about people being dumb. Mm. <laughs> How do you want to have
2: anything? Yeah, I think also, so I, when I was younger, I tried to learn how to use a compass and I couldn't figure it out because I'm terrible at. I have a terrible sense of direction. I'm good at like three things and everything else. I'm like really good at like three things and everything else. <laughs> One I'm like of the not things so good you're at.
1: good at is making a so, point. with a very interesting yeah. story or anecdote yeah. at the beginning of it. Um, so it's just you, so how you learn yeah, to use a me compass. learning
2: how to use a compass and I'm like, okay, so I'm going to learn how to use a compass. And Christine then like, I Adus totally failed. Number two. Yes. I could do that. Um, so I have a terrible <laughs> sense of direction and I'd always end up like wandering around. But when I moved to Colorado, then I had like a fixed point because the mountains are always in the West. Right. So now I can always find my way places. Um, but I, I think that what we have in all of these main plots and subplots in this novel is somebody trying to stumble around without the mountains as their guide, right? Who's actually trying to find their way towards some kind of goodness. I think we see that um, with Mr. Levy. I think we see that with Jones. I think we see that with Ignatius's mom, somebody in each of these like kind of circles in the story uh, who is actually trying to do the right thing and bring some kind of order to the chaos and Uh, but doesn't have the mountains on the West. Right. And I think Jones is that character in that particular subplot. And, and he's also like exactly what both of you said. He's, he's a local character firmly grounded within the community who has a role within the hierarchy, which is very medieval. Right. Um, And, 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 kind of owns it but also resists it at the same time, which makes him interesting. Um so we have this like American chaotic medievalism. Uh and 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 Jones is the character within that storyline who represents something local, but also represents something universal, who's kind of trying to stumble towards goodness, but doesn't have that fixed point. Hmm.
1: Interesting. I I feel like in a different episode we could discuss that for, well, we can discuss this whole thing for an extended period of time. Agreed. <laughs> um,
2: it's a really complex novel. And there's a lot that we didn't get to in our conversation because yeah, we were wrestling with right. kind of certain things that we were drawn to. But I mean, all these questions are good because they open that up for us to think about and for the listeners to think about.
1: I, again, I, you know, it goes back to my thing about how it's not perfect, but it is compelling because it right. because Agreed. it raises these questions. Um, sometimes I feel like in my reading life, I feel like I need to either, I have, you know, like, I'm either reading because I feel like something is some great classic that I need to cover, you know, whether it's a reread of Twelfth Night, which I just actually happen to love, or, you know, War and Peace, or, you know, just something that I haven't read in a long time or I've never read and I need to check it off the box. Cause I can't call myself a good reader if I haven't. And then there's just the, kind of the pure pleasure, the Agatha Christie novel, the spy novel, that's like disconnect from reality. And, you know, just kind of, I don't know what's the word veg out for a while. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but then there's books like this, where we know that they're not necessarily like, this is not a G B capital G capital B great book, but it's so weirdly fascinating that it, that it, it has remained in sort of the public eye in the of, of in, you know, curious readers for so long that I just want to read it and talk about it because it's an interesting book to read and talk about for the sake of reading and talking about it, you know? Even if we can agree, well, yeah, it's probably 200 years. I don't know that people are going to be reading this anymore very often, although they might. But, and it's kind of like a weird middle ground in terms of my reading life that I'm, I've been increasingly more interested in. Books that aren't capital G, capital B, they're also not, you know, waste an hour to feel better about life <laughs> um but they're like somewhere in between and the weirdness is what makes them compelling so anyway that's just a slight little diatribe there green um okay well, jennifer wants to know asks us on facebook how long do you think it'll take marnie to kick ignatius out of her car will they make it to new york tim what do you <laughs> think about that i think they make it to new york i think if they move in
0: together they're doomed I can absolutely
1: do. What do you think, Heidi?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's a cycle, right? This is, this is one of those dysfunctional, toxic relationships that takes 15 years before somebody like they'll break up and then somebody will move out and then she'll decide she wants to save him again. And he's a narcissist. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so it'll just keep going around and around and around.
0: But what if Ignatius changes? What if he
2: changes? So like, this is the same question. Myr- this is what's going to keep Myrna in the relationship for the next 15 years, Tim. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're
0: like, you're such an enabler, Tim. <laughs> you're enabling Ignatius J. Riley,
2: And it's true. I probably am
0: because I love him. But yeah, if like, hold up. If, you know, like my sister this or one of my nieces wanted to get together with Ignatius J. Riley, hold up. Stop. What, I us mean, come makes to your him, senses.
2: Right. What makes him change, right? Like this is every... What well, but she's just as toxic as he is. She's awful. So there this
1: Yeah, if that's your niece or your sister, you've got some other things to work on with yeah, right, yeah, right, 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 right.
2: Right. She- Ugh,
1: yeah. So, okay, Susanna asks, how does the story of Ignatius' dog, as told by their neighbor, Miss Annie, shed light on the state of his character? Sarah then also mentions that the dog is also mentioned at the beginning. And I think and she says, I think the dog's grave was also referenced in the middle of the book. So it seems like there is definitely an emphasis on this dog and its impact on Ignatius. So Heidi, what do you think about this?
2: Yeah, I mean, this is it's it's profound psychological insight. Every terrible person was once a hurt child. That's the way it is. Right. So that's. He's a terrible person. And one of the reasons he's a terrible person now is because he had like these deep childhood wounds. He has to, John Kennedy tools, giving us every opportunity within this story to like humanize Ignatius and wrestle with the fact that he's like this wounded little boy. He lost his dad. He was, uh, something creepy happened with his college professor. He lost his dog and the church didn't acknowledge the wound, like his mom enabled him. Like, I mean, it really is like he, John Kennedy tool had, you know, he, he looked up what does it take to create a narcissist and what kind of childhood wounds are necessary to create this long personality disorder that never gets resolved because narcissists don't get better, Tim. Um, And so then he invented a sad tragedy from the, prof- the professional
1: steps up there in Heidi. He's yeah. Like, he's not getting better, Tim. <laughs> so, walk away.
2: And listener, you need to break up with your boyfriend.
1: Right, so, right, right. <laughs> right. <laughs>
2: um, yeah, so I think it's really sad. It, it's a it's a real grief and a sadness. And there was once so, a time he could have taken a better path. <laughs>
1: So there's a question from Sarah about um, is the absence of Ignatius father significant? And if so, why doesn't the book put more emphasis on it? And she mentions how in um, peace like a river, there's an absent mother, but we do get just enough to understand the impact of her actions and her absence. So it's not directly addressed in this book. Um, Heidi, do you, I mean, looking at this from, both a narrative perspective and then also a story. I mean, a professional perspective. What do you think about this? Tim wants to say something too. So I'll let you know. No, I was going to say, and as a professional psychologist. Yeah, exactly. There's a couple of <laughs> questions about things that you professionally know more than Tim and I do.
2: Uh, so this book is, is incredibly psychologically insightful and consistent. I think that's one of the best parts of the book, but that's also how I read. And so that. Is I, I liked that. I think it's mm-hmm. and it's very very Freudian. Like if you were to, which I think as I think it was David that you said a couple of episodes ago, how um, he there's it's a little tongue in cheek as it as it approaches the Freudian um, interpretation. Um, so there, it's exaggerated and obvious yeah. for anybody who knows Freudian psychology. Uh, the hot dog cart and the flowers and all that, right? Like it's very, very exaggerated, um, and but it's consistent all the way throughout. And then there's a lot of subtleties that are thrown in too, like the dog, or just the, the comment about how he was uh, he was beloved by the nuns at his Catholic school and coddled by his mother, um, and. So obviously we have like a bit of an Oedipal thing happening here. Um, and then the college professor, uh, which creates a, like a homoerotic element that definitely plays out in the story. So there's all of these really interesting layers um, of Freudian and psychological interpretation. Of course, a, a boy who loses his father and is coddled by his mother. There are consequences um, to that within the character of a man. And, um, and again, that's just classic psychoanalysis, classic psychoanalysis. Um, and he works that into the story, both in big, exaggerated ways, and also I think in kind of subtle ways that add to some pathos, not just satire. You,
1: there's a question about um, whether, can we all agree, this is from Andy, can we all agree Ignatius suffers from antisocial personality disorder? And he needs a good mixture of antipsychotics and antidepressants and mood stabilizers with a healthy dose of therapy. Oh, and should we, and we should feel guilty for laughing at him. I am, we don't need to talk about this too much. Um, but what, what do you guys think about the idea of like, should we feel guilty for laughing at him? He uses a couple, you know, emo- Andy uses a couple of emojis here to kind of say like, maybe he's being a little tongue in cheek, but I was thinking about this when reading, because we talk a lot about empathy when, and we did quite a bit in this book and he is hilarious, but also the, the hilarity often stems from his, some really broken, brokenness inside of him. So do you, do you, do you, how, how do you think the book wants us to, to approach that? Like, are we supposed to just laugh at him without feeling guilty? Or is it asking us to consider some things about our, about ourselves and how we think about that? Like Tim, what do you, how do you approach that? I, I have a hard time saying,
0: I, I don't know what, to think about this because the question, it seems like there's sort of like a, there's a wink behind this question and I don't know how to interpret that wink, you know, like we don't really, (laughs) we don't like this is what the modern world does. The modern world kind of like sands off out, you know, uh, like salient characters by using pharmaceutical drugs. If that's what the wink behind the question means, then, Oh, okay. Yeah. Maybe I can like, but I, I have a hard time answering this question because I don't know what the what the intention is behind it. I have a, I, I'm have employing a hermeneutic of suspicion right now, which is probably like <laughs> a bad move to do with your listeners, but I just don't know what to do with this question.
2: Do you have yeah. a better idea, Heidi? So guilt and compassion are two different emotions and you don't need to feel guilt in order to have compassion. And so I think that uh, there... That in approaching Ignatius, it's very clear, and we've been very clear on the show. We've said multiple times in every episode that there is a hilarity to this character and this storyline, and there's also a grief and a sadness and a brokenness in it, and they mm-hmm. both exist at the same time. I personally think that's a much healthier uh, and more human approach than than guilt. To say this is funny on the one hand and also deeply sad on the other. Mm -hmm. And so I can feel compassion and I can also feel the level of ridiculousness that this person and his dysfunction and toxicity brings into the world. So, to be able to Mm. chuckle at something and laugh at it and also say, wow, this is a really broken person and I hope that they will recover and and become better and choose the right path. And I feel the grief of the brokenness of their life. To me, that is a much, much more human and true response than saying that in order to feel compassionate, I have to feel guilty and keep myself from any kind of true and proper response to their dysfunction and brokenness. Mm. So, I'm absolutely willing to laugh at it, especially since this book is funny. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't need to feel guilty about thinking something is funny. That is funny objectively. Um, and, and guilt doesn't heal. Guilt is not a healing emotion. Compassion is Right. And and mm. and repentance, those are healing to the soul. Guilt isn't. Guilt just brings disorder. And this is a book that laughs at disorder and points it out and asks us to look at it and to figure out a response wrestle through a complex response. Guilt is a pretty easy response. So I I I do kind of reject the premise of the question, but I also hear the wink and the irony behind it and say, I think he's more of a narcissist than antisocial because antisocial people actually want to hurt and wound and create chaos. Um, and he is, he he is wanting to be worshiped and adored and that's a hmm. narcissistic that that's a narcissistic personality disorder, not an antisocial one. Um, but I get the point um, and I hear the wink behind it and I'm, I'm, I'm saying, yeah, I know. Right. Like, that's the modern world wants to make everybody feel guilty. And, and, and I, I, I think that that's too easy.
1: Okay, moving on. We've got a question here from Rollin. Uh, I'm fascinated by Gus Levy. Just curious as to your thoughts. We've got a few questions about Gus. Is it possible that Gus is a surrogate type character for Tool? I know I've read or heard Ignatius was based on a professor acquaintance of tools. And I think there might be similarities between Gus and tool. He's a guy that pushed around by the ladies in his life who depend on him for their livelihoods. There's some parallels between tool and his mother. He seems a bit like the unwilling straight man throughout the book. And in the end, his redemption comes via the actions of Ignatius. And he does say redemption might be a strong word. So let's talk about Gus in general. uh, And Mr. Levy, we didn't really get a chance to to touch on that too much. Um, Tim, what do you think of the idea of, of Gus being the sort of unwilling straight man throughout the book, almost as Perhaps even, uh, no, this isn't, Roland didn't say this, but maybe almost like a foil in some ways for, for Ignatius.
0: I don't think so he he's just prominent go. enough to really be a foil anywhere Fair. other than in his storyline. And I asked myself many times when I was reading the exchanges between he and Mrs. Levy, which were my least favorite part of the book, because I think they were so like grotesquely accurate you know, this is like just a poisoned relationship. It was just like, oh my gosh, I've seen these before. I can barely be in the same room with couples like this, you know, like take some action, change your life in the relationship, do something. But like the poison spill out is just too much. So Mm. I think, yeah, Levy was a foil in the relationship with his wife. I just don't think he was prominent enough to be a foil for, Ignatius.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's true. He's definitely the most sympathetic character in his, in his weird little storyline, but I agree. It was, I, I, I thought that it, I thought that section needed some editing. I agree. It was too repetitive and it became like really painful and it lost all of its humor.
1: Yeah. So Krista says, she Hmm. asked a question with the levies too. And she said, I'm curious why we had to be so involved in their marriage if their only purpose was for Ignatius' character to be more fully exposed. I assume there's more to them than that. In the end, Mr. Levy's and maybe Ignatius' mom character flowered by seeing the error of his ways and repenting of sorts. So can you piece this storyline together within the context of the book for me? So the question of why we had to be so involved in their marriage, do, do you think it's as simple as, like, even if, okay, even if we accept your premise that it needed some editing, why does John Kennedy tool ask us to get to know their marriage so much, given that this is a book that's primarily about Ignatius. Like, do you have any further thoughts on this? I kind of think that in a way, they
0: are kind of like Jones. They're part of the set. They're part of that world. And of course, they help move the plot line forward. They're funny in their way. If you can kind of get over like the poisonous, like arrows that they're hurling back and forth at each other. Um, they move the plot forward, you know, Levy owns the Levy pants where the uprising is stirred by Ignatius and it's really funny. And there's kind of like, he helps dole out the awards at the end of the book, you know, all those things sort of make sense. Mm -hmm. But I think Chris's question is a good one because I think they're too much in the book. They need to be cut back.
2: They also add, just to your point about them being kind of like a set piece, uh, if we're looking at like multiple strata of New Orleans society, they Mm -hmm. are wealthy and, um, but just as. I really like the word you used, Tim, just as grotesque as anybody else, Mm -hmm. even inhabiting the upper sphere of society. So we need to have kind of that balanced look at the dysfunction within multiple levels of this particular culture. And they are Mm -hmm. just as like tawdry and sordid and grotesque as anybody else on the lower social status, um, even being as up high as they are. And so I, I do think that's necessary. Otherwise, it just... Um, becomes it could be kind uh, of a Marxist critique. It could exactly. be exactly like,
0: yeah. The lower levels of society they are the way that they yeah. are because they're victims of the economic machinery of society. Yeah,
1: right. Yeah, and and their 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 place in that status is sort of just as precipitous. Like they're on the edge. Like a couple of bad things happen and they're no longer there anymore.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, they're no longer in that upper class. Okay. This is an interesting question from Cindy, and uh, she makes a note to say, I am not being confrontational. I genuinely want to learn. So she says, I'm curious to know more about why Tim and Heidi find a novel unfulfilling if a character doesn't show that they are changing and growing. What's wrong with a novel that is made up of character studies, which give us people to emulate or avoid emulating? I read Confederacy of Dunces this way and was just fine with that. I wish I had a way to type my tone, she says. Uh, Like I said, she's not being confrontational. She says, most of my literary literary education has consisted of reading modern novels. So is it possible this is a classical education thing? Um, Russell Henderson adds to this that ironically Nabokov's criticism of Dostoevsky was that his characters don't grow. Um, So we know that you both are huge Dostoevsky fans. We can address Nabokov's claim if we want to, but- Can I, I'm not sure that I'm going to agree
0: accept the premise of Russell's statement. I've read well, a little bit of- ne- Oh, go ahead. N- N- Nabokov's criticism of Dostoevsky. And my understanding is that that's not the criticism that he levels against Dostoevsky. But Russell probably knows those essays better than I do. So I'm, I, I'm reluctant to say, yeah, I accept the premise of that question because my reading of Nabokov's criticism of Dostoevsky is something different. Okay, that being out of the way-
1: where are we? Okay. Well, let's just go back to the, you know, the question of, you know, you guys talked a lot about whether the book is fulfilling, unfulfilling. So she says, why do you, why do you find a novel unfulfilling if a character doesn't show they're changing and growing? Heidi, do you want to address this first?
2: Uh, sure. Um, I. I think what's interesting about it, about this question is that I love medieval literature, but out of all uh, eras of literary output, by far the medievals have the most fixed characters in their stories. Mm. Um, Mm. So each, but then the medievals were also known for allegorical kind of writing, right? So, you have something like Spencer's Fairy Queen and um, the knight is always good and chivalrous and the villain is always wicked and evil and the woman is always idealized and perfected. And so, there's there's this, this sense of um, within medieval literature of kind of a fixed character representing an abstract idea or characteristic of the universe or of God or of the story of Uh, of the world or whatever. Um, And I I like those, Um, but I like them because I like the allegory, not necessarily because I'm drawn to the, the story as just a story. In that case, it's kind of boring. So Mm -hmm. I, I do think it is necessary. I mean, this goes all the way back to, uh, as you pointed out, the uh, classical antiquity, it was Aristotle who says a, a, great story has a catharsis a change in the character and he argued that tragedy is the best genre you know tim you made the case earlier you defended the case that that comedy is um mm-hmm. or you brought forward this this right. essay that you had read um but aristotle argues that tragedy is the greatest genre because you have a tragic character at the cent- at the center of a story of the best story who experiences Some kind of catharsis, which is a kind of a shedding of pity and fear um, on the part of the story that 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 releases emotion for the audience. And I think that he had there's something about what Aristotle is saying and every great author and literary critic has had to wrestle and reckon with Aristotle at some point in their writing career. Um, because this idea of a release of emotion, that's what a story is, is it builds something up, it gives us a problem or a conflict. And then that there has to be some kind of change that that takes the stories from that high emotional pitch and releases it in some way, and. One of the ways of doing that is to bring a change on the part of a character. The character is making mistakes or the character is trapped in some kind of problem. And then there has to be a release of that in order for the story to end. Otherwise, it just stays at that same high emotional pitch and it never is resolved. Hmm. Um, And so that was Aristotle's case. And I'm going to say that's probably my case. For wanting to see some kind of interior movement uh, on the part of a character. Uh, That doesn't mean I want a neat little bow at the end, as I've tried to defend a million times on the show. I'm not saying I want some kind of like moral uh, climax the way I think about morality. Like that's. I, what I'm saying is, there has to be some kind of release of the tension of the story and resolution of the problem of the story. And I think one of the best ways of doing that is uh, is within the character as well as within the character's circumstances.
0: Mm. That mm. was unbelievably good. That was so good. Thanks. Can you to add to that? <laughs> that was fire. No, I have like how by adding to it, I would diminish it.
1: That was great. Well, fine. I won't say anything, then. I'm sorry.
0: (laughs) By me adding
1: to it, I would diminish it. I just want to add what is a comment compliment. The release of tension thing is really good because like, that's at the end of the book, like you need to, the tension needs to build, build, build. And this is true. Not even, this is like, a crime novel or something or an action story or something right. is the obvious version of this. But like when you read Jane Eyre, for example, we did that earlier, or you read Hamlet or, or even a much ado about nothing, which was a comedy. There's like this tension that hangs over. The easiest form of tension is what's going to like end up happening to these people who are in a bit hard situation. But like if a book doesn't build you up to some kind of tension, like then in the end, are you going to care about it? You're not going to care right. about how it ends. And that, that release of tension then eventually coming like, to bear in the climax of the story is like the, that point was, was I'm not ruining it, but was as Tim said. Tim, Tim told me I was going to ruin it. But, um, <laughs> but the, just that, the, the idea of a release of tension being crucial to a story being worth sticking with and being memorable, mm-hmm. like in terms of how we experience it you know, like the emotional experience we have with the story is tied to the degree and mode of tension that the story offers to us. Mm. Um, I don't think like it can still be a good book. It can still be a memorable book or a book that you think about or you talk about or intellectually you process, but how we emotionally experience a book or any kind of story is tied to the kind of tension that the book wraps us up in. So I, I, and what you, the way you put that was just help me kind of think about that. And then I had to think about it while speaking out loud and ruining Right. Well,
2: and I just want to say when last week you asked a really good question, David, that I don't feel like I answer very well, which is what do you mean when you say satisfying? And that's what I mean. I'm using it. I, I'm hoping I'm using it in as objective a sense as possible in the sense of it is satisfying to experience a catharsis in a story. And that feels to me, objective, not subjective. I'm not saying when I say satisfying, I'm not saying I want the book to end the way I want it to end personally satisfying. What I'm saying Mm -hmm. is, does it satisfactorily resolve, create and resolve the tension? And does the ending of the book then bring as much kind of release as it brought buildup and in a way that is uh, surprising, but also satisfying. Hmm. And and that I mean it in an objective sense, because I I think that there's an objectivity in our soul's need of that.
0: Hmm. I feel like this point is really important, not just to you, Heidi, but to all of us, because one thing that is kind of like crucial to the show is we let, we're determined to let books speak and define their own world, like we, yeah. it, Heidi is very keen and I so appreciate it because I am 100% with her to not impose like her set of convictions upon the book and say, this book succeeds if it conforms to my standards, my proclivities, or my Christian beliefs, worldview or whatever, my Christian right. worldview or something like that. Yeah. Like you've always been really clear and hopefully we've all been really clear that that's not like loving your neighbor. It's not being, it's not loving the author. It's not being benevolent as a reader. And so I really appreciate the kind of distinction that you're making, because it could sound to someone who's who doesn't know you and who hasn't paid attention to this show very much that you're somehow advocating for, this book didn't really fit my like view of the world and thus I don't like it. No, it's a lot more sophisticated than that a lot it's yeah a lot more sophisticated than that
1: yeah it's it's not even in the same vein
0: (laughs) to say call it more like sophisticated is not right it's not it's just a different you like interpret books in a very different way than someone who would say it needs to conform to my vision of the world
2: well I appreciate that I do think that that's it is worth kind of as you said, repeating that over and over and over again, as we read on the, on the show for, you know, for listeners who are like, wah, wah, I know. Like, but I, I do, I agree. I think it's easy to, to sound simplist morally simplistic, especially with my response to this particular book. Um, because I just thought it was gross and I didn't like that, but I understand it's like that's a preference issue and it's very separate from the objective quality of the novel, which I freely accept.
1: Mm. Yeah. This, this, the tension thing is so interesting because that, that is one of those things where it can be so unique to each individual. So mm-hmm. personal in terms of what kind of things lead us to feel tension and yet so many of the greatest books make all people feel tension if they're paying attention <laughs> in a, in the particular moments. Right. Like if you're not paying if you who doesn't feel some sort of tension, if you're actually reading Hamlet mm. in the moments where Shakespeare wants you to feel tension, regardless of what your typical personal taste is. And so it, it's funny, like when I'm working on some, some kind of writing that question of tension, even if I wouldn't put it this way is like, I think it drives so much of a creator's, of a writer's time because you're wanting to hold the attention and create tension in some way in almost every scene, right? Like when Tim is writing a play, you want each scene to build on the previous scene and build up the tension of the story. And yet each have its own compelling sort of tension within the moment. And, and like, even if we don't think about it that way, it, it's such a, a challenge to storytelling that when you see something be universally accepted as tense, just to use the terms of the story, it's like, pfft, wow. like it's, it's just blows my mind that everybody feels tension in the moment. Yeah. When Hamlet is going through this thing, even if they wouldn't like, like people with completely different personalities, completely different tastes. Right. If they're paying attention, we all feel tension in this moment. And yeah. like, that's a, one of the markers of like universally something becoming universally capital G capital B great book. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like Last so time. hard to accomplish so yeah. hard to accomplish. And by the way, just
0: as an advocate for my own, like my own genre, that's the thing that I love about theater is that if theater does its job. We are feeling as a group, a bunch of total strangers sitting next Mm -hmm. to each other. We, Mm -hmm. in regard, coming from radically different places. If the, if the actors and the script and the director and the producer have all done well, we are all experiencing the same thing at the same Mm. time. Like those Mm. that kind of like, feeling of a group emotion is so powerful. It's so democratic in a way that I really Mm. enjoy and value. Um, It's so human kind of capital H human. And I think we get the same thing with books. We certainly do. But what Heidi experiences is experiences is experienced in isolation. What David experiences is experienced in isolation. Then we get together on this show we oftentimes can talk about, Oh yeah, I felt the same way when I read this passage or that passage. And so it's a little bit of a kind of like a theatrical production that
1: we are putting on here, but that's There's yeah. something. Yeah. Say it's something. individual, but also universal at the same time We we'll yeah, each of our own yeah. particular feeling, but we feel it at the same, at the same times. Yeah. And I think the only way that can happen is if you have like these great books that we're talking about, they accomplish this, like that's just a ha- Hamlet the two things that make that possible is a, a real insight into the human psyche and, and like into the world, mm. which the great books, the greatest books have, the greatest authors have, but also the ability to create a consistency within the, the world itself. Because if the world that you're experiencing as a reader isn't, isn't true to itself, isn't consistent, doesn't have its own patterns that we can all recognize, which we talk about all the time, right? That we want to let the book be what it is. If you don't have that, then you're not going to, that tension is not going to be there. And then you have to have those two things together. Mm. Um, And that's, I think that's why it's almost impossible because if you lose one thread of that consistency, then that tension starts to become particular and not universal. Yeah. Right. Um, So difficult. Hey, one last question here. We got one more question here while the writing, this is from uh, Sarah Curry. She says tool is obviously a master at crafting sentences. His word choices usually seem exact and perfectly planned. Yet he uses the word screamed a lot Everyone is screaming at each other In many instances when it seems the dialogue could have been said With the same vitriol without the volume Is that a flaw or do you think it was intentional To me it was distracting and even stressful But perhaps that was the point She says I know never so passionately loved a book While at the same time not caring to pick it up between readings It was confusing A strong meh while on my nightstand With an equally strong perfection while in my hands <laughs> <laughs> Wow that was beautiful
2: Totally I true felt that. I, actually I did felt too that. Big time. Me too. Um, Same, same. So
1: what do we think about the way he writes these sentences? I mean, he says Particularly the word screamed. Yeah. Like I think she's using that as an example of the way he, the way he writes.
0: I picked up on that. There was a few times I thought, wait, Ignatius just screamed. That doesn't seem to fit the vocabulary that he just used. And I kind of took that as a statement more about, um, heightened feelings from the speaker more than an actual high-pitched loud resonant utterance
2: <laughs> that was so great a high-pitched loud, resonant the um, word utterance. i'm just gonna look this no, up i on, did i totally like- dictionary.com did you just look it up because <laughs> i feel like that's what it says
0: so, <laughs> is it i mean like Am I alone in this? Like, I, I totally agree. That <laughs> yeah. is what scream, scream is. is something that is leaving your body and going out in the world. And I interpreted it as a statement of inner feeling. Uh. So I completely acknowledge, like I did some hermeneutical gymnastics there. because so it You're did. saying that
1: John Kennedy Tool is expressing something about the character rather than the action.
0: I think so i and i don't i'm not meaning to say like oh he might as me you know ignatius might have whispered that sentence i don't think that i think it came out you know big but i think it was more a statement about how ignatius was kind of like he was internally roiled when he said it Hmm.
2: i i really really like what sarah said that it was distracting and somewhat stressful, but maybe that's the point because that's how Mm. I interpreted it. I find Mm. screaming in general, very stressful and anytime it it would appear on the page, I would like my emotional response to that dialogue changed completely. Whenever he said screamed or slobbered, which was another word he used a lot to describe Ignatius when he was talking. And as soon as I saw that word on the page, I like internally got like stressed out, and I think that that is um, a again a part of why I found this book stressful to read. I like this book way better now that I'm not reading it anymore. Now that I'm just thinking about it, yeah. (laughs) I just want to restate that. Yeah,
0: (laughs) I just want to restate this. Um, Sarah asked, like the word "scream." You know, kind of like how'd you read it any normal reader would say scream it's about like the volume and the pitch of the utterance Tim said it's about the internal um like combustion that's the happening within the character the and Heidi said it's about me yeah it's about, <laughs> it's <Ali."> about
2: me <laughs> like but I didn't I didn't like it I just like Sarah I was like Oh, now I'm reading about people screaming at each other. And mm-hmm. st- and then I'm like not thinking about the words. I'm just like waiting for the scene to be over. Yeah. And, um, and I, I do think that's the point. I think that's why he uses these emotionally loaded words in the dialogue. Um, and that's why my favorite part of the book. Like, I usually like dialogue a lot. I didn't like reading the dialogue in this book, hardly at all, except when Miss Trixie was saying Gloria, in which case I laughed my head off. Um, (laughs) And I, but the parts I liked were the parts when, what mostly like Ignatius's written words. Those were my favorite parts of the book because I thought they were funny. And, but like, anytime there's two people talking or in a conflict, I was stressed out because the words like screamed and slobbered. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I think that those dialogue markers are really important interpretive keys in the book and they add so, so much to the emotional pitch because they create a strong response in the reader, which is why it's about me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean... It's that's true though, because every re- you're trying to create, you know, a storyteller is trying to create emotional response. Like you're trying to create an individual experience that each, that each reader is going to have, like you're trying to create something universal and also a particular experience. And any writer that doesn't, doesn't pay attention to the fact that every person who reads their story or watches their movie or attends their play is going to have a particular experience with it is being an idiot. Um, not to put too fine a point on it, but also when you read Woodhouse next time, watch the number of the way he talks about people walking because he never says that somebody walks. He uses every possible other word, including a lot of words that don't and actually striding, about walking.
2: Advanced, <clears throat> yes, he does.
1: Right, I think it's a, I think it's the the whole the whole it, it's the Woodhouse of it all here in in the Confederacy of Dunces. Okay, we are out of time. Final thoughts on this book. Heidi, you first, then Tim. And then we're going to go uh, our merry way, in varying degrees of merry. Uh-huh.
2: Um, yeah, I think I'm going to close with I I I I have a very dissonant experience with this book. Um, on the one hand, it's hilarious, and I liked that. On the other hand, I found it distasteful. But on the third hand, because I have three hands now, um, I i the think- left foot. Yeah, mm. I'm thinking about it a lot after reading it. And, and so this is not a great book, capital G, capital B in terms of the technical definition of great book as like influential in culture and enduring over generations. However, I am, I am going to say my final word on the book is this is a really great novel and there's flaws in it and it could have been better. Uh, But man, if you could actively dislike a book and can't wait to be done with it. But then once you're done with it, you can't stop thinking about it. It's good. And this is the first book I've ever read on the show that I just did not like. Mm. And I am the first one. I hope it's the only one, but I'm so glad I read it. And I'm going to say mm. like, this is a really good novel. And this is why people should read things they don't like, stick through it to the end and be charitable toward it. Period. Period. I
0: think I just enjoyed the book more than you did, Heidi. I think I just found it easier to laugh at and kind of bracket the kind of grotesque parts of it. I just think I found that a little bit more easy to do. Maybe because I lived on an all-guys dorm in college and really recognize a lot of the actions of Ignatius J. Riley as the actions of myself and our tribe. Um And but I I felt the same way that you did. Like the book pings around in my head after I'm done with it. And I always consider that a, a primary marker of a really, really good book. The books that I can walk away from and never think about, you know, five minutes after I put the book down, no, they just don't meet the qualifications for me of like just being of excellence. And I think that this book... Meets that first
1: basic criteria of excellence. Well, thank you for answering some questions and for your great conversation. David, what are your book. final thoughts? I don't know. Do you, do you read PG Woodhouse? I don't know.
2: <laughs> Always uh, I, I my like,
1: final thought. I like, I'm just going to make that my sign off for every episode. Now, read PG Woodhouse. Um, I, I I like this book. I I felt the like I. I can I feel the some of the complaints that people have or the the, the difficulties that people have with it, um, but I'm glad we read it and I'm glad that you know we were able to talk about it together. Um, and and it is a book that kind of like lingers, kind of hangs around. Uh, you'll probably be thinking about it, and something's going to pop up in ten years when you're reading something else. So I'm, I'm thanks to everybody who who didn't love it but pushed through and read with us. And um, you know, reading as a, a community as a group is is super super fun and really mm-hmm. special. So we're going to do that one more time this year. We're going to talk about Henry Green's Loving. We're going to do the one episode. It's a relatively short novel, another weird one. How do you like Loving better than you like this?
2: Yeah, I like Loving. Okay. It's a really weird book, but I like it.
1: So yeah, we're ending 2021. We're ending a weird year with some weird books. And then of course, as we begin um, the new year, we're going to dive into Agatha Christie's Death on the Nile. The, that movie is coming out in February. Next week, we'll do some Uh, Well, sometime soon we'll be posting some episodes on our favorite books that we read this last year. And we also, of course, have the daily poem. We've got Winnie Wendell season two just wrapped up of that. So if you haven't, you know, if you and your families haven't haven't caught up with that, you can check out all our interviews with the authors and the great times that we had on that show. Of course, there is the plays, the thing, which is, and you guys are doing Henry the Fourth right now. Act one is up. Act two should be up soon, I believe. And uh, we've got our Patreon episodes. We're um, in the middle of Anna Karenina, getting towards the middle of that very long book. So hopefully, everybody's. Um, you know, if you're a Patreon supporter, first of all, thank you so much. And hopefully you're loving those conversations. And we all know how much Tim and Heidi adore that book. So and Brandon. <laughs> Brandon adores that book as well. And I'm on it in a hit or miss fashion on those episodes, but I also really like that book. So hopefully our um affection for that book is shining through on those episodes. Just want to say Merry Christmas to everybody. Thank you so much for a great year for supporting close reads, whether it's Patreon. Facebook group, telling friends, leaving reviews, whatever you you've done, you know, just listening and being a part of this community is, is awesome. We're grateful to be able to share our love of books with you, uh, to, to have these conversations with you. And, uh, thank you for giving us the opportunity to get together once a week and, uh, nerd out a little bit about the books that, that we love, the things that we love about literature. You are giving us the opportunity to do something we love and hopefully we are returning the favor and, and uh, giving you content that you love. So, I just wanted to add that here at the end. It's been it's been a weird year in many ways, but the close reads community is like a constant. You know, every week we get to come and, and do a show for you guys. We're really thankful for that. So I don't know if Tim or Heidi, you want to add anything on to what I'm saying here, but feel free if you do.
2: Tim, we do are- you feel comfortable expressing any kind of positive emotion at this time of year?
0: <laughs> Despite my <laughs> objections to festive feelings at this time of (laughs) year. That's actually, we've made like a joke of it. This is not even true. I don't feel this way. I don't feel this way. Like I get to see my brother and sister-in-law tomorrow. I am ecstatic. I'm so happy. And I know it only happens thanks to this beautiful time of year. But I just want to echo everything that David said. We are really fortunate to be able to do what we do.
2: Heidi, stop glaring at me. I know in spite of the fact that Tim doesn't love baby Jesus, we're going. to. <laughs> it's so I don't even know I what mean, to say. I mean, you came, you came after our matching Christmas pajamas. We, like, we always. what you we talk t- about how
1: I'm like a little brother on the show to you all, but Heidi is in straight up like a little sister mode. Little sister. She's coming after me.
0: <laughs> I am going to you know what I am doing? I am memorizing a new hymn. With my friend Ben, as a way of like honoring the season,
2: I'm so glad to honoring hear that. Baby Jesus. This is so yes. yes. Who yes. he does love,
0: Heidi. Yes. <laughs> he in turn, he in turn is memorizing a Shakespeare monologue about the fear of death. <laughs> it just feels like it's so on brand.
2: It's really... That so is definitely you may want to stop now. <laughs>
0: yes. yeah, I'll walk
2: back. The of right? I'll walk back. Death, right? <laughs> I'll walk back. Um, since I do love baby Jesus and happiness, um, I, I I, just really love you guys. I love you guys. I love the two of you. I don't mess with people unless I love them, Tim McIntosh. <laughs> and yeah, Merry Christmas and God bless us, everyone, which I know... Everyone. Every everyone, that's right.
1: Well, with that, for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, happy reading, bahambug. What? <laughs>